I'm going to invite us to turn to Luke 21. I've had some time this, this week and this weekend to work through a, a few different things. Um, hopefully you've got a note from the front. Sorry about the printer. I have no control over what it does once I press the button. <laughs> but uh, we were just talking last week a little bit about the temple and the stones, Luke 21 in front of us, and uh, I thought it might be neat just to show some pictures and speak a little bit, excuse me, to context, and uh, this may interest some of the younger ones that are, are there. I thought it was pretty cool as we were there, but uh, in Luke 21, um, verse 5 and 6, it says, then as some spoke of the temple, right, and obviously the temple's in Jerusalem, um, spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. Now, just how beautiful that is in your mind, um, as I think everybody here is Gentiles. Do we have any Jewish people with us this morning? No? Okay, so as, as North American white Gentiles, um, you know, what does beautiful adorn with stones look like to you? And I mean, there's there, there's, there's always room for, for helping us out with that. And he said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So we'll just spend a little bit of time at the start um, of the service, the start of the message this morning, just working through some context. I hope you find it uh, interesting. But uh, we'll pray because I think there needs to be a, a happy balance. You know, number one, we need to grab the context, right? We need to see just how proud these were, these people were as to the building and the accomplishments. And I mean, the size of these things and, and, and the, the wealth that they poured into it. And, and again, I use the word pride for a reason. I mean, their hearts were so spiritually far from God that Jesus had to flip tables when he came into his house of worship. All right, and that's pretty sad, isn't it? All right, but here these people were thinking they were okay before God. So, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just think of um, just the moments that we have ahead of us. And I pray that we would recognize the authority as we open your word and these pages. Your words are read. Lord, this is you speaking to us. Lord, as we gather here as your people in your house, it's not the temple, but Lord, we today are, are your temples. Lord, and we recognize that your spirit is within us. And we recognize that as we gather, if there are things that are not right individually and corporately, Lord, the application can be made that you're not pleased. And you deal with that. So my prayer this morning that you would just lead us through this. Lord, I pray that, that regardless of age, regardless of, of Bible knowledge, Lord, that we would be listening to you speak through your words. And I ask for your spirit to move this morning. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so I'll just ask Edward to move to the first slide. Many of you know that two years ago, um, my wife and I um, had the privilege of going to Israel. Now, this would be a picture from the Mount of Olives, okay, looking out over the Mount of Olives to the Temple Mount. Now, I apologize. I can't get it any bigger. That's the technology we have. <laughs> um, that being said, I do have a picture of the Temple Mount, taped to the wall right there. So if you are interested after the service or if you really want to get up now and you're bold enough to go look at it, 
um, go for it, okay? But that's the Temple Mount. That's looking over the Mount of Olives to the Temple Mount. Jesus is on that Temple Mount. Now, that's the Dome of the Rock, completely different um, today. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's recognizing that this is a real place. Okay, I'll ask Edward to go to the next slide. Um, this is the size of the streets, okay, over there. Now, I don't know how big, when you picture the parade, you know, as Jesus, the triumphal entry, and as he's coming into Jerusalem, this is the size of the streets over there. I mean, I, I don't know, that, that's like barely 12 feet in between, okay? So everything, everything is scaled down. I mean, it just, just adds to this ambiance. You couldn't miss it. And it definitely has you thinking as we are walking down through on the, the same, same ground that Jesus would have entered to, uh, to Jerusalem right, right this week um, that we're reading here in Luke 21. Okay, next slide. This here is the, a tunnel that goes along, you've heard of the, the Wailing Wall, okay, against Jerusalem. It's the closest place um, a Gentile, and I think for the most part a Jew, can get to the Temple Mount today because the Arabs have control over the Temple Mount. So this is, this is the wall. This is actually under, under street level, and this is getting close to the base of Herod's temple walls. Okay, so I'm going to read a little bit to you from here of Herod starting the construction. But that black, sorry, Chris, I'm going to call you a blob when she's listening to this, okay? You see the black, if you can tell, it's a lady leaning against the wall. That's my wife, Carissa, okay? And this is one of the, the well, I think this is the biggest stone of Herod's construction, okay, Herod the Great's construction. It's 44.5 feet long, and 11 feet high. So I want you just to, just to picture that, okay? And we're going back 2,000 years ago, and they're building with these blocks, these stones, okay? So this, when, when Jesus says that there won't be a stone left unturned, don't picture the, the stones that we dig out of the field, even the biggest stone. I mean, the, these are huge, intentional building blocks, like 45 feet long. I mean, that's I mean, the gym's 60 feet, so it's almost the length come back of the gym by 11 feet, okay? So these are huge stones. If I was to read just a little bit from um, gotquestions.com, I posted this this morning. Um, yeah, just humor me. It says, what was Herod's temple? Because Jesus is in Herod's temple. We know it's the Father's house, but, but we have to understand that Herod the Great the same Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus. Um, he was a prolific builder, and he's the one that, that built this structure. And I mean, again, foundation stones, 45 feet long, 11 feet high. That thing wasn't going anywhere. And, and this is their response. What was Herod's temple? When David was king, he asked God if he could build a temple. God told him no, but allowed him to gather the materials his son Solomon would need to build it. This is found in 1 Chronicles 22. Solomon's temple was destroyed and ransacked by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So we remember Nebuchadnezzar? Right, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and Solomon's temple is destroyed. I mean, they, they flatten it. King Cyrus of Persia allowed the temple to be rebuilt under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Okay, and we remember Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel, they come out and they start rebuilding it. 
Um, the book of Haggai is all about stop worrying about your homes and return to the work of the Lord. Okay? So they start this, this work um, of the second temple. Over the next 400 years, a series of Gentile rulers alternatingly built up and defiled the second temple. The cycle culminated, okay, so we have world leaders and squabbles and transitions. The cycle culminated in 39 B.C., okay? So 39 B.C., if Jesus was born around that 6 B.C. mark, okay, this is in, let's say, Joseph's um, area, okay? It culminated in 39 B.C., battle in which King Herod the Great took control of the temple, slaughtering many of the priests and defenders in the process. So, I mean, the, the Temple Mount, again, even then, the, the turmoil, Herod the Great comes in, um, there's the battle, slaughters the priests, defenders, but also keeping the Roman soldiers from entering the sanctuary. Herod proposed to renovate the Temple in 20 B.C., his reason being the post-exilic Temple was 60 cubits shorter than Solomon's original, so it wasn't as great as Solomon's. So he wants to fix it. And again, Herod the Great was a prolific builder. Despite the Jews' fears that he meant to tear it down and never rebuild, the main work on the temple was completed in one and a half years. And the outer courtyard in eight years, finishing touches continued until AD 63. Herod's temple then was a restoration and expansion of Zerubbabel's second temple. Okay, so the temple, it, it's finished, but then it's, it's still um, being worked on until 63 A.D. So how big exactly, and I mean the big stones, can you go to the next slide, Edward, please? Okay, and again, it, it's a little small, but this is a model that they have in Israel. It's a museum there, part, where you can see how, how Jerusalem as a whole was laid out. All right, and there's much. You can see the old city of David down below. You can see where Solomon um, builds onto it. You can see Herod the Great. You can see Hezekiah's walls. You can see Herod Agrippa's walls out the bigger side. Uh, go to Google and just, 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 just Google um, Herod's temple, and, and it has all these pictures on it. Okay? It's fascinating. All right? just, just learning this part of it. Can you go to the next slide? And maybe the last the last one? Okay, this is the one we're looking for. Okay, so this is a model of the temple, Herod's temple. Okay, and the, and the, the, the I don't remember the name of the Jewish man in 1966, but he, he scaled it, uh, he built it to scale based on the documents that he has from Josephus. Okay, and Josephus is a, a Jewish writer, a historian, recording in first century A.D. So he, he saw the temple. He'd been in the temple. Okay? He watched Roman um, come in and destroy the temple. Okay? And this, this uh, architect went in there and took all the documents from that, and he, he scaled it and he built it. So when you picture, and I mean, we have to have some creative license here, but when you picture the temple, this is, this is a, a, a model, okay? Um, according to historical aspects of what it would be. On the eastern edge of Jerusalem, just west of Gethsemane and northwest of the Kidron Valley, sat the temple of Herod. So I want you to picture that. 
The dimensions of Herod's temple court were 1,550 feet by 1,000 feet. So it was about 35 acres, okay, with, with the courts and what have you. So 35 acres. That's a fair-sized field when you think about it, right? I mean, it had to be. I mean, you, you had Passover and the feast. You had anywhere from 600,000 to a million people coming and worshiping. Okay, this was a, a pretty, pretty big thing, right? And... and uh, pretty easy thing for them. But we also know what happens in A.D. 70. Do you remember? Right? Rome comes in and destroys it. Right? This generation that Jesus the Messiah came to, offering himself as king, his message was repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They reject it. Right? And there's a, a cursing that goes on. Right? And Matthew chapter 12 talks about that this generation that rejects the Christ will answer for the words that come out of their mouth. And that judgment that comes in is what? It's the AD 70. And this magnificent building, and you think of how much wealth and, and, and pride, and this is us, and this is where we worship, and this is us as a people, and what is the end result? Not a stone left unturned. This article explains that there was so much wealth, so much wealth that as, as Rome come in and, and, and the temple itself is burning, I mean, they talk about a lot of this being gilded with gold. And then the heat, the gold and, and the silver melted into the rocks. Right? And that's why the Roman soldiers were flipping stones of the walls, trying to get the wealth, wanting to get the gold that had melted in it there. And you have, you have pride, and then you have greed, and then you have prophecy fulfilled, just as Jesus says here, right? So I just with this picture, and I, and I don't want this to be too distracting, I was going to read, <laughs> again, not everybody likes history, but history is important, right? Is it not? I mean, understanding that, that there were people, there were people writing, there were people recording um, back then, and that, that opens our eyes to what is taking place here. So with our notes, um, we understand, okay, and I use the word religious mess, I used another couple terms there last Sunday there, but I mean, people were mixed up in what was pleasing before God. That mammon of, of cares of this world, deceitful, deceit of riches and desire for other things had bound people's hearts. And that comes from Mark chapter 4, right? And we see that prevalent today, even in churches, right? Things, things very quickly can become a religious mess, and we know what happens in eighty seventy. God judges that. So with verse 5 and 6 before us, we see judgment is coming, Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. The people were following this this religious mess. Again, Jesus had flipped tables. Again, people were giving towards this. There was so much wealth in this place, that they were storing it. I mean, the gates, everything was, was gilded with, and yet there was no spiritual attachment to this. 
and God would deal with it. It's interesting to observe that even as these disciples are, are speaking of the temple and how beautiful it is, it's interesting to observe that people measured obedience and spiritual fellowship by things. I think about it. Look at the stones. Look at the money that we're giving. Look, 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 look. The beautiful facilities, the programs, the attendance. Um, Pharisees had a, <laughs> had a real big thing about being seen and the practice. The public eye had become the spiritual thermometer. But what you can see, the things that we're doing, I mean, that does not, that does not delegate how we are doing spiritually before God. That's something really to humble ourselves before. The public eye had become the spiritual thermometer. As they're saying, look at the building, look at the things. Verse 6 says, these things which you see. It's like they're saying, look, Jesus, what we've built, what we've done for you. And the comment came this week, the things of the flesh do not last. The things that we do in our own strength do not last. The things that we do um, for me, even, even what I think, don't last. And we see that played out in our families. We see that there is, uh, we see that played out in our churches. We see that played out in, 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 in programs. We see that played out. The things in the flesh do not last. We'll move down into verse 7, and I'll ask the question. It says, so they asked him. And I, I wanted to be very, very, very careful who he's speaking to here. Right, as I come back up, I, I come to verse, chapter 20, verse 45. As he's speaking in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. So you have a multitude around listening Right? Jesus is instructing, but we have the disciple. And a disciple would be a, a subject or follower of Christ. Right? Someone who is recognized, okay, you are the Christ. You are, uh, you are the rabbi. You are the teacher. You are the one that God has sent. I believe in you, and I want to follow in your footsteps, follow in your instructions. Jesus is giving some very straightforward instructions here. And yet when we come to 21.7, we see them wrestling. We see there, 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 there seems to be a form of, of incredulous, you know, I, I, what are you trying to say here? I mean, look at this temple. It's 35 acres. It houses, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Like, I mean, it is the center of worship, center of community. People continually, every feast travel. I mean, you're saying this is going to be gone? What did he say? Not one stone will be left upon another. I mean, it's going to be done. And that's something that these, the, these listeners were just, just and again, that those words, wrestling, doubt. Perhaps they didn't want to recognize this judgment. The word ignoring it, like, no, 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 I just, you must be mistaken, or, or, or I, I don't think so. They process this, his disciples asking him, we see the wrestling doubt, perhaps ignoring the seriousness of it. And this is a real evidence of immaturity. Right? Because when Jesus speaks, when he gives his commandments, when he gives instruction, when he gives his law, 
it's authority. There is no wiggle room. There is no gray area. When we read this, when we read what needs to be applied to our lives, there is no question. We read it as final authority. So we see here that we have this evidence of immaturity. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, when will these things be? And what sign will there be that these things are about to take place? Does that sound familiar? <laughs> I'm going to say, as we studied, and we, we know the bigger picture, and again, this is us there just grasping who Christ the Messiah, the anointed chosen one is. It says Deuteronomy chapter 18 all over this passage, does it not? Now, I have that in our notes there before us. I'll turn in my Bible. I'll invite you there too. There. But when they ask him, saying, Teacher, when will these things be? What sign will there be when these things are about to take place? They're recognizing that he has just given a prophecy. They're recognizing that he has just prophetically spoken out into the future, and they're more or less going, okay, give us some proof. Give us some proof. And I want you to turn, turn with me, and you have the notes, you don't necessarily have to turn, but um, I'll go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Right, and we keep coming back to this because God, back in 1400 B.C., to Moses, right after the Exodus, after the 40 years of wandering the wilderness, he promised that there was coming a new prophet, who is the Christ, who is the Messiah, one who would speak the words directly from the Father. Deuteronomy 18.15 says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst from your brethren him you shall hear according to all you desire the lord your god and horeb in the day of the assembly saying let me not hear again the voice of the lord my god nor let me see this great fire any more lest i die and the context is their mount mount sinai and you remember the people were so afraid as the mountain is shaking and and the flames and god speaking that the assembly said no 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 moses you go talk you be our mediator you you be our go-between moses says okay <laughs> well there's coming a new prophet a new mediator one who would speak from god to the assembly to man to israel Verse 17, and the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put, and this makes the gospel of John come alive because Jesus repeatedly over and over, I'm of my father, I'm, from, I'm, I'm of God, I'm from heaven, I, I'm for the father as king, I speak for the father. He says, and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Can you see the Christ? Can you see the Messiah here? And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. You reject the prophet? You reject his words? You reject God's word? Guess what? There's guilt. There's consequence. God will deal with that. I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. There's a seriousness there, right? 
especially when we think of the warning where Jesus says, many will come in my name. Ooh, there's a seriousness. God doesn't take that lightly. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? And again there, which is this, this question in Luke 21, right? How, what sign? How will we know? If you say in your heart, how will these things be true? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. There's a lot of of people that say they speak for God, and yet they have a self-agenda, right? Presumptuously, they have their own own mindsets, their own directions, and God knows that. God knows humanity. But if we come back to, to Luke 21, they're listening, and they're like, what, our building? You know, our center of worship, our center of, of heritage, our center of community, right? And that's going to be flipped around. Jesus, I mean, this is a pretty serious prophecy. Teacher, when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, maybe coming, coming back to the notes just prior to, to moving on, we have the disciples wrestling. I mean, they're supposed to ask. They're supposed to to question these things. But, I mean, they'd spent three and a half years. Well, less than that. Two and a half years, many of them. Two and a half years with Jesus. I was thinking all the different evidences, all the different miracles, all the different messages, all the different ways that, that Jesus authenticated himself. John chapter 5 says there's a fourfold witness John the Baptist went ahead of him, right, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, that was nothing secret to them. And then Jesus come along, right? We have the the voice of the Father from heaven at his baptism, as well as several other places that authenticated that this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. You had the signs and wonders where Jesus continually before the people authenticated himself. Then lastly, you had the Scriptures, Right? You, 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 you search the scriptures in them, you think you have eternal life. These are they that speak of me. Right? He had a fourfold witness. And I was thinking to myself, as, as the disciples, they're sitting in the temple, we're, we're less than a week away from, from Calvary, and they're still going, prove it, Jesus. That spiritual immaturity, rather than just going, okay. You know, like, like tell us what we need to do. Like, what, what is our next step here? The idea of, of, of asking him to prove it and sign it out there, I mean, that's just, just, just something there that really touched, touched me. I asked myself the question, why the sign? Why, why, would they, why were they asking for a sign? Like, like, like two and a half years, it should have just been like, okay, what do we do now, Jesus? Right, what's the next step? Why the sign? Why the parables? Why the pictures? Why the proof? I couldn't help but think there, it was only because their hearts were only partially interested. Sometimes when our hearts are only half into wanting to understand, right? it's like we're, we're, we're semi-detached. We're there, but we're not there. Our hearts are only half interested in what Jesus is saying. And I mean, all the things that, that, that has led up to this place, and I mean, at this point... 
I mean, the, the, the triumphal, end, I mean, everything here, like it just, it, it should have been, okay, what do we do next? And yet we hear that the, the spiritual immaturity and hearts that are only partially interested. What will it take? What does it take for younger hearts and older hearts? What will it take for God's people to take him at his word as final authority? And even today I ask that question. You know, in the midst of, of academic circles, I mean, Dr. Dorn and I talk often, why don't people just read their Bibles as final authority? That would, that would probably eliminate probably at least 60% of different denominations, <laughs> right? I mean, the, the books on the shelves that people are writing, oh, this is what I think. And that would eliminate all that. Just, just read the scriptures as final authority, the churches would come together under Christ, under, under that authority as the Spirit would lead us and, and things would be changed. This world would be different. I think of generations that are coming up. Even some students, you know, finishing four years at, at NBBI, other, other Bible schools being trained and they're going, well, I'm just not sure. Four years. I mean, I, I got it written somewhere. How many hours of Bible teaching and yet this culture says you can still decide for yourself. Show us a sign. What sign will you give that this is true? It's true. <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, that is the bottom line. We live in that world. And I'm scared for what the next generation is coming up into. This is our final authority. But the flip side is I see grace here as well. Jesus is patient. Right? And he walks them through it. Just the same way we need to with the generations, with ourselves. But we need to with open Bibles. Right? As Jesus speaks for God, I mean, I have the red letters in front of me. This is the promise that was made to the people 1,400 years. I mean, B.C. with Moses, a new prophet will come. Final authority. Let's step into verse 8. And he said, Take heed that you do not be deceived. There's much deception today, is there not? There's always been deception. There's always been man-made ideas. Satan has always just a little bit of truth and has a way of creating this brush stroke that causes so much damage. Take heed that you do not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am, I am, I am he, and the time has drawn near. Whenever I read that I am or that emi uh, in the Greek, as I'm starting to notice different things, right? I think of Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush. Right? I am that I am. I mean, deity, you have the, the Trinity all in one picture there. I think I wrote a paper on that, actually. Trinitarianism there from that Exodus chapter 3. We have that prolific. And believe it or not, in John 18, when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're saying, they're, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am. What do they do? They fall to the ground. Right? There's something significant here. And I mean, we, we, we could go back to there. I mean, when he says, I am, he, like many are going to come and say, I am, I am, I am. And they're not. They're deceiving. They're, they're stepping into this position that they have no place in. I mean, they're calling themselves the new prophet. You know, I'm speaking for God. I'm speaking the words of God. And they're not. They're deceiving. Um, some would be claiming that they're the anointed chosen. 
Right? I mean, I am the Christ. There were many Christs. Read the book of Acts, and, and we'll, we'll close with a passage from Acts. Right? Many were claiming to be God's solution, God's salvation, kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? Right? I mean, it's, it, it, <laughs> I mean nope, I'm not going to go there. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's many, many have their own ideas. Many believe that they speak for God with closed Bibles. I mean, many, many are just causing these deceptions in many different ways. Let's just read, read a little bit further. It says, I am he and the times draw near. He says, therefore, do not go after them. I'm going to say that's a command. That's a warning. That's a, a application of the seriousness of what's going on in that culture right now, right? The things, the turmoil that's going on. But when you hear of wars... And commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Right? There's, a, there's going to be a, a building up of tension. There's, there's going to be a turmoil going on, but the end isn't, isn't immediate. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. You have world empires just colliding, um, governments at each other's throats. You can just imagine... And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilence. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. And we see a description much of what Revelation chapter 6 through to 19 is in the tribulation period. But verse 12 is meant for these disciples' ears that are wanting the sign. They're wrestling. They're, they're doubting. They're like, you know, prove it. Even after two and a half years of walking with Jesus, they're questioning the authority. And what does he say? Verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Does that verse really fit into the, the me culture that we live in today? The Christianity me culture where it's all about me, right? And my well-being and my... my my comfort and my, my wealth and my blessing and my life, that doesn't fit in that, does it? It never, it never has been part of God's plan that you place your faith in Christ and you forsake all to follow Him, that that's going to be comfortable for you. That's never been part of the plan. All this persecution, verse 13, it says, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Testimony of who? of the Christ, right? The Messiah King, the one who died, the one who's seated at the right hand of the Father right now. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. If you got a pen, just write down Acts chapter 6. This is what they said about Stephen when he's preaching the, the, the dying message, the message of his life. They can't contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. This isn't just betrayal as the world knows it. This is because you've placed your faith in Christ. You've stood on the word of God and you've forsaken all and followed him. Because not all your friends, not all your family, I mean, sometimes not even your spouse 
is on board with forsaking all and following Christ. Some will put you back, or pardon me, they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. It's a pretty serious thing. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. All right? Why is that? Because you have the promise of God. For those who have placed their faith in Christ, you have that place in His right hand. You have that promise of life now and life then. You have that promise of being in His presence for eternity. By your patience or endurance, possess your souls or possess the life that has been given to you. If I was to summarize that up for those that have placed their faith in Christ, Jesus is saying all these wars, commotion, turmoil, false teachers, um, they're going to persecute you and, and, and kill you and you're going to be betrayed by your family and all that pleasant stuff all because you've committed... An... <laughs> anyway, that doesn't sound very, very nice there when you put it all in one, but I mean, that, that's what you're called to do. And if I could summarize that, it's, it's, he's saying you stay, you sacrifice, and you serve. Right? And I got that right in the bottom. You stay when times get rough, when your world's falling apart. And as much as me wants to go for a reflection of the past two years of the condition of the church, right? you stay, you sacrifice, and you serve. It's not, not complicated. Right? And if we want this to play out, and, and maybe I won't, I'll, just, I'll maybe ask you guys to turn there. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And if you were at home, to read verses 17 down to the end of the chapel. Maybe we'll just, we'll pick it up in verse 33. But I encourage you to read from 17 down. We see this played out. And this is Peter and the apostles that are imprisoned. Right in the midst of, of turmoil, of Christ has ascended. And I mean, it's just them now. The Holy Spirit has come. And they're already tasting that pressure. Right? And again, those three words, stay, you sacrifice, and you serve. Verse 33 says, and when they heard this, and I mean, there's the, the Sanhedrin is at each other's throats and, and what the apostles are doing here. And it says, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill the apostles. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Does that sound familiar? Right, this is Paul's mentor. Right, the apostle Paul's, when he was Saul, this is his mentor a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves that you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thudius rose up claiming to be someone or somebody. Right? Someone claiming the I am. Right? One of the deceivers. Okay? One that had his own agendas. A number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was slain. And all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. 
After this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. Another one claiming, I am. Right? The end is near. Drawing people after them. He also perished, and all obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Leave the apostles alone. <laughs> for, it is plain, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. And generally, whatever is of the flesh does not last. Right? It causes a lot of confusion and hurt and loss, but it doesn't last. It will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. This is the Sanhedrin. They agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy. Worthy for what? To suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So I can send you there home with those three words. Right? Stay, sacrifice, and serve. Sounds easy. But putting it there into practice, especially when your family's hating you, especially there when your 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 friends, when your government, when your community, right, when you're stepping out in boldness and proclaiming the name of Christ. It's another story, isn't it? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just think of the narrative that's before us, Lord, and we just think of how hard this must have been for these disciples to process. Or sitting in, in the great building that they were sitting in. Sitting in the center of worship. Or the center of community. Lord, all the, all the different ways and things that this temple meant to the Jews. And yet you said it's all gone. Because their hearts were not spiritually pleasing before you. Lord, and we just think of, of just all the different points that we work through. And Lord, I just pray that you would be with each person here this morning. It's not an easy topic of sacrificing and forsaking all. Lord, oftentimes we have to lose everything before we'll even consider giving our hearts to you. Lord, oftentimes we have to have everything taken from us before we'll even consider obedience and getting in your word and figuring out how we are supposed to live pleasing before you. And yet here we have it, Lord, very clearly final authority, Lord, that you call on us to stay, to sacrifice and serve. Lord, my prayer this morning would be that we all quiet ourselves around what you have just told us. And that if our, there are things in our lives that are hindering us from forsaking all and following you, Lord, I pray that we would deal with them. Or if there are areas where we know we're not walking in obedience, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move. And that if we need help, we would reach out for that help. Lord, that you would, you would just remove any kind of hindrance or pride from, from us taking that step. Lord, I pray that you would knit 
those together. Lord, so that when we talk about abiding, when we talk about unity, when we talk about serving before you, Lord, it is a close, spiritually intimate body of Christ. And I pray that you go with us. I pray that you guide our conversations. Lord, I pray that you give us opportunities to share this grace that you've given us. And I pray these things in your precious name. Amen.